I want to remind you, as we began last week to take up Thessalonians, uh, the church at Thessalonica, you had seen from the beginning of Acts chapter 17, well, it was a church that was met with lots of problems. When Paul had gone there and preached the gospel, there, were, uh, there was major conflict and major problems such that he was somewhat run out of town. But in that place, God had called out from those people some believers who had turned from all those other things to follow the true God. All of their general pagan and former beliefs, all of their idolatry, all of those festivals, all of those practices turned away from now to live and love and honor Jesus Christ. As a result of that change, there was a lot of problems they faced. There was tremendous affliction and difficulty. And as Paul writes to them this letter, it has been sustained affliction. And this was the struggle that they were going through. We expected maybe a time of transitional trial and difficulty. But it's still going. <laughs> and it, and, and it's, it, when is it going to stop? And actually he writes to them. And in this writing it's to encourage them to be steadfast. To persevere. To remind them of the joy of the spirit that is ours even in the midst of trials. But he doesn't write to them at any point saying... Two more weeks, or two more months, or two more years. I mean, if you, if you put an end on it, it seems easier to face. But he doesn't promise that there is a period at which somehow it's not like there is a, a horrible initiation and hazing period. And if you can get through that, then everything is just easy as can be that's not the case and they were struggling wondering well when's it going to stop and he writes to them to tell them it's not necessarily going to stop but even as it isn't going to stop pressing in on you you by grace are not going to stop pressing forward in Christ and so this is how it's going to continue to be and he wants to encourage them in what they're doing to persevere and to continue in that. Now as we come down and really look. I also want to draw your attention to note this. This whole section. Not only chapter 1. But all, into, all the way into chapter 2. Though we will derive some practical instruction from it. For our own lives. The tone of this section of scripture. Isn't so much about commands and instructions. It, it is an extended section of praise and prayer and thanksgiving to God. Remember, he says this in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in all of our prayers. Remembering, and then he goes on to list what they remember. Even if you go over to chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So again, as he gets into chapter 2, he's still thanking God for what's going on in them. I also want you to notice this. That, that section, though we'll come to it later, says, thank you for you received the word of God for what it is, the word of God, which is at work in you. And this is always one of the things we got to dial back. Wait, 
What do you mean the word of God is at work in me? Isn't Christ at work in me? Isn't the Holy Spirit at work in me? And what's the answer? Yes! Christ is at work in you. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. But, but the manner in which He so powerfully moves and works within us is through His Word. It's, it's the movement uh, uh, of God comes through the Word and what the Word of God communicates and what it reveals to us and what it means. The, the reality is, is what motivates the Christian life and what continues to strengthen us, embolden us, convict us, correct us. It, it's not mysticism. You know, as much as we like it, it's not music. It's the Word of God. And that's why when we do go to music, we want to often sing Sing the Word of God or sing things that are consistent with the Word of God. Because nothing else really gets it done. So one of the things that we're going to consider today is if you find yourself in, in a season of struggle, in a season of backsliding, if you, if you in a brief self-examination are greatly dissatisfied with where you're at, how do you fix it? Well, you're going to get a whole host of answers on how to fix that in the modern books that you can get. Both within Christianity and outside of it. You know, any number of ways. Three keys, seven steps, uh, twelve, whatever it may be. Someone's going to give you something. I'm going to simplify it down for you. More than anything else. You need God's Word. It is in His Word that you see the glory of Christ. That you understand all that He really did and accomplished for us. It is in the Word of God that you understand how the Spirit is at work within us. Uh, uh, waging war to set us free from the desires of the flesh and move us to those things that are pleasing to God. More and more of the word. When things get harder, when times get tough, you don't say, I don't have time for this. Now, this isn't to the exclusion of prayer because it's an unhealthy thing to think of taking up the word of God without prayer because our ability to receive it and our ability to understand it is all through the gracious working of God. And so we approach the word of God prayerfully. That's why we pray before we preach, we pray after. I would hope and encourage you to pray before you read. When you're struggling with something that's in what you're reading. When you're convicted with something. Right there. You don't say, uh, I have to finish the chapter before I pray. No, right there. God help me to live this out. Help me to, help me to throw this away. You know, strengthen me in this, that, that, that my life would be more and more conformed to what I'm seeing here. God, you've given it here that I might know it. You've given your spirit that I might be conformed to it. You've, given, you've accomplished by Christ all that's necessary that I am freed to move towards it. So, God, do this. I want it, so, I want it to be understood in all of this. There is a serving, there is a, a, a working, there is a work of faith, a labor of love, all that is there. But he is thanking God for it. Because even with each step, 
I want us to understand this. With each step and each commitment or resolve that we would ever want to or endeavor to make to live for God, we do so with, God help me. God, I desire in accordance with your word to to live like this to your praise and glory. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your keeping hand. I need your guiding power. I need you, God. And so that when we accomplish it, or maybe when we have done some good work and accomplished some faithful service, when it's all said and done, what do we do? We do not praise ourselves because we praise him because we know, we know of all the times we haven't done right and we haven't done those things. But it is that, that just engrafting into the word and prayer that is going to make us so much more diligent. But what I want us to begin to see today, coming, coming through this, still in the context, it says this. And listen as I read verses, five, uh, verses 6 and 7. And then we'll pick up our main theme for this morning. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So the first thing that we see in this passage is, interestingly enough, there is a strong emphasis on the idea of examples, the idea of being imitators. It said there, it, you became imitators of us, and of the Lord. And then as a result, verse 7, and so you became examples. Now this is important for us to briefly look at this this morning. Because they became imitators of Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy. They, we've got to understand that in the way that God works, God uses his word and he uses his prayer. Powerfully, personally, and privately, as well as corporately. But there is also another way that God powerfully works in our lives and through our lives. And that is by way of example and imitation. Now, this is an interesting concept because it kind of runs counter the prevailing culture of our day in which we live in. Where the... The commitment of many in our culture is to be very individualistic. You know, let you be you, let me be me, we all be ourselves. And whatever that means to you, you be that, you know. So if you want to shave one side of your head and leave the other side unshaven, you do that. That's you, you know, and everybody gets to have supposedly this unique expression of you you know and and then you get groups of people within given environments or given schools and you you've probably seen these sort of circumstances and maybe participated as well i say this not to shame anyone but the the group of people who decide we don't want to be like everybody else and so we're going to be different and there was a time that everybody would be different from everybody else by being different in the same way. You know, We're going to be different than everyone else. We're going to wear only black clothes, wear black fingernail polish, black lipstick, and we're going to be different from everyone else. And so you've got all these people who are the same kind of different. 
you know, the, we, I want you to say, state this. That idea is not what we're called to do and be in the scripture. And so there's some things about this that are going to go counter to the ideas that the culture tries to press in upon us. Don't be you. Don't be like you. Don't do like you. Be like Christ. Do like Christ. Wait, well, where's my part in it? Where, where do I get to be me? Well, what if it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you? What if you've come to understand that the whole commitment to me is utterly useless? You know, it, it, to me, the, oh, the commitment to me is like this idea of somebody uh, being in a corn maze. You ever heard of a corn maze? You know, they, 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 it grows up really high and then they cut these shapes into it and you go in there and you got to weave your way through in order to get out. But if you go a cert, on a certain turn and it leads to a dead end and then you backtrack and then you say, well, let me try that way again. Maybe this time it won't be a dead end. And you go there and you come back. At what point would you say there's something wrong with that guy? <laughs> because he keeps going down the road that he's already found doesn't get him anywhere. That's the me road. The road for myself that I want to chart to to be the fullest expression of me. Brothers and sisters, that is a dead end. There is no joy there. There is no peace there. There is just disillusionment, discomfort, and isolation. That's not help, healthy. And we're called, and we see here, these people became imitators of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And then they themselves became an example. Now what I want us to notice is this. First of all, before we get into the particulars of it, I want to say this. What is the ultimate purpose of examples and being an example? Imitating godliness and living in a way that others might imitate the godliness they see in us. What is the ultimate purpose for doing this. And it really is that, that beginning there of verse 2. We thank God always for all of you. When believers see godliness. The grace of God outworked in the life of God's people. You know what it produces? Praise and thanks to God. And so, again, it's not so that we would receive praise and thanks. I just want to thank you for how godly you are. It's a great example to me. Well, yeah, I'm going to just live so godly when everybody sees me that, that everybody praises me all the time. That's not good. And, I, and we've got to be careful with that because too much praise of the man who's seeking to serve to the glory of God can promote pride. And then soon that fellow who was godly, it's become a game. And so I, the, the scriptures do warn 
In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. It's, always, it's important to finish that sentence. It's not beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. No, you don't have to go into a, into a secret place to do good things and, and, and to do right things and to pray only privately. I don't want anyone to ever see me praying and I don't want anyone to catch me reading my Bible. I'm gonna, you know, I don't want to do it to be seen by others. No, do it. Beware of practicing it in order to be seen by others. It's okay if you're seen by others praying. It's okay if you're seen by others sharing the gospel. It's okay if you're seen by others doing right. Just beware of your motive being that others would see me. All right. You don't hide it from others. And while as you simply live out a godly pattern of, of righteousness through that grace that is working within us, that, that new realm of light in which we dwell, uh, people are going to see it. And it's good for them to see it. And it is useful for them to see it. But remember, we do it. Why? So that when, if they see it, they should praise our Father in heaven. Actually, still in Matthew, if we were to go back from Matthew 6, 1 to Matthew 5, 16, it said this, in the same way, let your light so shine before man that they see before others that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what is the ultimate purpose? That God would receive the praise and the thanks and the glory. And when I think, and I think when you think, of all that we are and all that we have, all that we are becoming in Christ, how can we not want him to be praised and glorified all the time? It is fitting. He deserves it. It is rightly his. Um, it, it says it again in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they're not going to like what you do. I mean, we're coming into a day and age when, we, when, when Christians stand up and say, we think that abortion is wrong. It's not right to kill babies. We think that immorality is wrong in all forms and, and all, all these uh, twistings of, of right husband and wife relationships, right male and female relationships. All of these twists are wrong. The world begins to look at us because we hold to what the scripture lays out for us. And they begin to say, these are evildoers. Haters. Well, we hate sin. But because we do not embrace the sin of those around us, people will call us evildoers, narrow-minded, bigoted. You know? And again, our, our goal is not to simply change people's conduct. People need to repent and turn to God. A change of conduct really does nothing. Mere morality saves no one. 
It says that they'll, they will speak against you as evildoers. They will, they will see themselves as better than you in many respects and speak against you, but they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Someday when, they, when God is revealed and they understand what is justice and what is righteousness and that everything that we were urging them was true and right, who will be glorified? God. They're not going to be seeking us out. Because again, we are not, any, none of us ourselves are supposed to be distinctive. We, I, we are to imitate others who are imitating others who are ultimately imitating Christ. And we're going to see how, how that works itself out. The world should not just hear what we oppose. But that we oppose it because God opposes it. Right? We can't just let the world know we disagree with this. We stand against it. We've got to let them know, well, this isn't our feeling, our opinion, our decision. Because God opposes this, we stand with God opposing this. They cannot just hear what we oppose, but that we oppose it because of God. And they should hear and see in us what God approves. In other words, I'm, wanting, I'm saying this, it's not enough for Christians to take a stand against certain things in this world. This is what we oppose, and so Christianity becomes characterized in the mind of the world of all that we oppose. Well, that's going to be a part of it, but it's more than that. There is much that is right and honorable and noble and pleasing. And they ought to see within us an amazing amount of love for one another. An amazing amount of compassion in this world. The willingness to come alongside and, and help people who are in need. They've got to see not only what we oppose, but that we also live for those things that God approves. Right? Because sometimes Christians get a bad name. And some of those people who get a bad name, they've worked hard and rightly deserve that bad name. I may agree with what they stand against, but the way they've stood against it is, is, is not in a way that really honors God and sets forth Him and His unchanging standards. They're really setting forth themselves. And they don't just set forth, we need to set forth not only what we oppose, but who we serve. And they will see, well, we not only will not participate and don't approve of those things, but this is what we're all about. Not only what we're against, but what we're all about. Um, Paul says uh, of himself when God did his work in Galatians 1, it says in verse 24, they glorified God because of me. He who used to persecute is now preaching the faith. They glorified God because of me. That is the goal in being a good and godly example that others should imitate. That is the goal in looking to others who have a good example that we would imitate, that God would be glorified because of us. In Ezekiel chapter 36, it's important to think of this. The children of Israel were often a, a, a given as an example, a warning for us on whom the end of the ages fall. And they were called to be a distinct people, extraordinarily distinct. Their distinction was in ways that exceed the demands of distinction upon us. They were to be distinct not only in their conduct 
and in their faith and belief in religion, but they had to be distinct in all kinds of details of ceremonies and sacrifices, all kinds of details of festivals. They had to be distinct in the style of clothes that they wear, as well as the nature and grooming of their facial hair. Which they couldn't do certain things with regard to how they kept their beards and how they kept their hair. It was, we are not having those same constraints, but we are still called to distinctness. But I want to read for you Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20. It says this, recounting the children of Israel. It says, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of their land. These are the people of the Lord? Oh, that should not be said. But the world looks. Now, if they're going to say that because we stand by the word, then someday they will, we, there will be vindication. Let them say that because we stand by the word. Let them say that because we live for Christ. And not because of, of, of our character, because they see a worldliness, because they see compromise. Let it be that when people see those of us who are called by his name. In Romans 2.24, it gives this warning. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <laughs> so what we do, what the people of God do, can either lead to God's name being brought to shame or God being glorified. So we've got to take, get this seriously. What we do, it represents whose we are. Everything that we do, are we doing what honors Christ? Because there is a reflection. And people who know that we claim the name of Christ... That we claim to be Christians. We come from a Christian home. We go to a Christian church. And yet then we are doing certain things. That they themselves do. And that even some of them maybe don't do. What does that do for the name of Christ? Ah. You, might, you might somewhere come across people who say. Why should I become a Christian? I know a bunch of them. They're no different than me. I mean, the only difference is they have an appointment on Sunday morning that they've got to go. Other than that, there's no difference between them and me. Is that how it should be? Of course not. And he is praising God and thanking him that that's not the case in Thessalonica. Secondly, not only did we see that the ultimate purpose is the praise and glory to God, but secondly, I want us to see not only an ultimate purpose, but a useful pattern. In a negative, 3 John verse 11 says this, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whatever is good is from God, and whoever does evil has not been seen, uh, or has not seen God. Here's, here's the reality. Nobody is absolutely unique and innovative. Whatever sin someone's going to do today, is it going to be the first time anyone ever did that? No. 
someone is, un, uh, is unfaithful to their spouse. Is that the first time that's ever happened? A, a kid disobeys their parents. Is that the first time that's ever happened? Somebody being greedy and selfish, angry and bitter. Is that the first time? Brothers and sisters, there are no new sins. And actually, since when we're born into this world, we are condemned and we have a sin nature in Adam. Everyone is by nature the absolute worst kind of imitator there is. And you don't want to hear this, but you kind of have to because you're sitting here right now. He says this, when Jesus is interacting in the Gospels with those men who are accusing him and condemning him and attacking him, he tells them this in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, and you are just like him. Oh, my. So, ultimately, if we were to even roll it all back, everybody or everything we do is in some kind of mimicry, some kind of imitation. We are either repeating the things that God himself would do or approves of? Or are we are repeating the things that the enemy himself did and that he encourages and tries to stir up all people to do? Here's the, here's the way that Jesus was saying it. You ought to be like your father. You ought to be like your father. More than he, even there, he's not even telling them that they ought to be like their father, is he? He's saying, you just are. Because that's the way, to some degree, it kind of works. I mean, we, we know this. I mean, there, there are things people do that are bad habits. Uh, 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 we're all aware of, and, I, and I've had so many friends uh, through the years who, through various circumstances, had taken up smoking. And oftentimes, daddy smoked, and granddaddy smoked, and... Uh, at no point, you know, and, I've, and, and a lot of them have tried to quit, but it, it, is, a, it is a tough thing that, is, that grips them. But what's interesting is this. Did your father ever sit you down and tell you this? Since I was 12 years old, I've been smoking, and I want to make sure that you go ahead and smoke too. Every day of your life, I want to see that you're smoking. Has that ever happened? No. No one's ever had to do that. Why do often the children do it? They grow up seeing it, they grow up smelling it, and it becomes a part of their environment and, and an effect on who they are. And that effect is hard to break. The, the idea of a pattern, do not imitate what is bad, but, it, but do what is good. In, in our passage here, it says this, and I love the way that it introduces it in verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. So there's no man who serves as the first example. Who's the first example from which all the other copies are made? The first example is the Lord, is God. That's why, again, it is be holy as I am holy. That's the first example. And then from that, you have the different 
places that we are in our living out, in our imitation of that perfect standard. There remains but one perfect standard. And that's going to be God. And you and I will never be that perfect example in any way. There will be certain areas in which we have made good progress and in certain areas in which someone else has made good progress. I mean, the, the way that I can give you an example of this is if, if someone was saying that um, I want to be the best uh, tennis player in history. Well, one of the ways they're going to do it is not start from scratch. What do they do? All right, who has the best forehand in tennis? And then they've got to imitate that, everything about how that works. And then who has the best backhand? Well, the guy who has the best backhand is not the same guy who has the best forehand. Not the same guy who has the best serve. Not the same guy who has the best volley. And so all these different facets, there's different people who have better examples of those things. And so we get to look around and we can learn different things from one another. Now, we shouldn't be, and any person who is a professional player, doesn't, none of them say this, I'm going to only be known as the guy who hits forehands. Because the game requires more than that. You know, and if his backhand's a weakness, then he's got to keep working on it and keep working on it. We can't say, I'm good in this area. You know, I'm so much better than most people in this area. I'm not even going to try to shore up some of my weaknesses. Does that make sense? No, because you're, you're trying to run the race in such a way to win it, and your desire is to glorify Christ. Here in these, this area, I'm bringing glory and honor to his name. But there are a few of these other areas that I would love to be able to bring more glory and honor to his name in these areas. God, help me work on these and bring these things. And so he begins uh, like this. First of all, now here he's praising that they became imitators. But if you do go to 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church was not uh, uh, as praiseworthy in some extent as the church in Thessalonica because there... We have all of this infighting. We have all of this mistreating of the poor. We have all of this misunderstanding and fighting over spiritual gifts. We have uh, drunkenness and all, just a mess going on in Corinth. And so he gives them in 1 Corinthians 4.16 this command. I urge you then be imitators of me. Now here's, here's the value in this. Somebody wrote a book a few years ago and then they started handing out bracelets and all these things. What would Jesus do? WWJD. Well, here, here's the tough thing. There's a lot of things that, we, that go on today that Jesus didn't do. You know, Jesus didn't use the phone. Right? Jesus didn't drive a car. So how would Jesus get from this place to that place? Well, should I just do, go, go there like he would have gone there? See, it, it all begins to break down. And then you get two different guys. On this, in this event, what would Jesus do? Well, I think Jesus would do this. And the other guy says, well, no, no, no. I think Jesus would do this. And what does Jesus always want to do? What I want to do. You know, if there's not a specific verse, and so that, that idea is no good. It, I urge more than that, what did Jesus do? Not what would he, but what did he do? 
and further than that, we have other examples. Those who learned from Jesus, those who have learned His Word in depth, those who are by grace striving to live out that Word of God, you and I don't see Jesus having a conversation with someone else, do we? We don't see, we, we have the scriptures, but we get to visibly see one another. We can actually lay our eyes on men and women who are good examples. And Paul says to them, I urge you, be imitators of me. He says in 2 Thessalonians in verse 9, that what some of the things we did when we were there was to give in ourselves an example to imitate. In Philippians chapter 3.17, he says this, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitate me. And when I go, you imitate the people who are doing what you saw us doing. Because that is that pattern that where there would be a pattern of discipleship, a pattern of mentoring, where, where Christ is the ultimate goal, but, but, but men who have lived and served and, and, and by grace been conformed more to Christ, they look to others and, and they want to help them and encourage them. And those who are younger in the faith, they look and they say, I want to develop. In these areas where there's this life of mentoring, this life of discipleship that takes place. Imitate me. Join in imitating those who are like us. Even uh, more so, the scriptures go on to say this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So, I mean, all of these things become pretty significant. The perfect one to imitate is God. Then those who are in leadership have to live very carefully and recognize, I have to live in an exemplary way. But then to the very church at Corinth, not just to the pastors, not just to the church leaders, to the people, they're called to imitate and to live worthy of imitation. So, I mean, sometimes you might think of this, um, one way to think of it is, if I do this, does this glorify God? Does this honor and, and pray, would this bring praise and honor to his name if others were to see me doing this? That's there as well. But how would I feel if others that I love imitated this? How would I feel if what I'm about to do right now, someday my sons and daughters my grandkids and granddaughters did this. All right, I wouldn't want them to do it. So you know what I'm going to do? Not do it. Because I want to be an example worthy of imitation. Why? So that God would be glorified in me. And, and for the life and good of these people. So a useful pattern. I also love what he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me, the second command to that, that church at Corinth. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's very important. It's not just be like me, but be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Paul's got this clear thing in his mind the whole time. I want them to imitate me only in as much my commitment is to imitate Christ because their goal ultimately isn't to be just like me, but it's to be like Christ. But sometimes that scene, there's this seeming distance and a disconnect. It says this um, in uh, 1 Peter 2.21, For this, to this you have been called to suffer and be steadfast. Because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. It became popular a number of years ago to say, uh, you know, only liberal theology presents Jesus as an example, whereas we present him as Savior and Lord. And it sounds more noble. But it's not actually, it, it may be more noble, but there's nobler yet. <laughs> We present him as Savior and Lord and supreme example. Why is it? Why, why do we have to cut that off? Why do we got to give that to the liberals? He, he did these things. He lived as he lived, giving us an example that we might walk in his steps. John 13, when Jesus humbly washed the feet of his disciples taking up the role of a servant and meeting a present need. He said to them, I have given you an example that you ought to do just as I have done to you. Here's this idea. What if we were by grace able to live not doing to others as we think they deserve, but doing to others as we would like them to do to ourselves and others. I didn't come up with that on my own. I'm sure that your, your mind races to see that that's the idea that the scriptures give to us. I want to move on quickly and, and uh, concludingly to the third idea. Uh, an example can be an underestimated power. What I mean by that, and I'll, I'll give you an example. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 16. He, that is Jeroboam, who became king after Solomon, gave Israel up because, uh, God gave them up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Here he was in a prominent position as king. And actually, if you read through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, it's amazing how often it says, he sinned and made Israel to sin after him. He, now, did he pass a law forcing them to sin? No, it, it, it's usually not that hard. It, the, the nature of men in this world, you have to pass laws forcing them to do good. <laughs> but you could just let them go. And they're going to look for something bad someone's doing and imitate that. And then gather together and do that, to, do that together. Uh, the same thing his son Nadab. It says in 1 Kings 15, 26. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father in which he sinned and he made Israel to sin. There is a powerful effect of example. Either for good or for bad. And that's just, that's just a reality. Now... 
The scripture tells us in Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33 that the, the soul that sins it will die. And that there are occasions where you have a faithful dad and then his son is unfaithful. Or where you have a really unfaithful dad and then you have a faithful son. Because ultimately the grace of God can absolutely shatter all of the good and bad, or the bad examples and, and bring us a new example in the glory of Christ. And the sinfulness of a man's heart can callous against the good examples that they've seen. And until br grace breaks that hardness of heart, even what they've seen can have no effect. Okay? But just because examples are not guarantees does not mean that they're not also a powerful thing. The way that things were often done. But we live in such a different age in, in which you, you go to school and you get textbooks, right? And you, and you, and you study these and you, and you memorize these things and you write your tests. That's not the, generally the way lots of things were done in the past. You know how you would learn a trade? You would be an apprentice. You would come along someone and you'd work with them. You'd see how they do what they do, and then they'd let you step in and give it a try with them watching over you. And what, you, what, are you, what is that apprentice trying to do? I, I saw what he did, and I need to do that. And when I do it exactly like he did, the outcome is good like his is. And so when the apprentice is then fully trained, what is he able to do? exactly what he learned to do, exactly what the master did. This idea of apprenticeship, and that's why we've got to understand this, I know this, as powerful as the word of God is, is his living word, God has designed us also to live in communities. And Paul would not be commanding them, imitate us, look for other men who, who, who live in the way that we've, we've lived and ordered you to walk and imitate them. He would not be calling for imitation if it wasn't also valuable and powerful. Are you saying the word of God is not enough? Be careful because I'm asking you, what informs the life of that individual that you're considering imitating? He's living according to God's word. So it's not disconnected, but you've got, you've got that tangible, viable example. Because even within learning techniques, we all have that idea. Some are more kinetic learners. Uh, uh, some are more uh, auditory learners. Uh, some are more visual learners. Uh, uh, some still trying to find out what kind of learners they are. But some, someone, they see it and, and it's a lock. Others want to close their eyes and hear it because then it sinks in better. And so different people are just wired differently. And God has given us all of these wonderful tools. His word, the working of his spirit within us, visible examples of those that his spirit and word are working in and manifesting. This is what it looks like. This is what the, the grace of God, the glory of Christ at work in someone looks like. And so we see those ideas. To Timothy, he says this, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example for the believers. 
The intention. There should be an intentional. I want to live in an exemplary manner. What's the scope of it? Well, poor Timothy. uh, In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So are you pretty much saying everything in my life ought to be exemplary? Well, yes, by the grace of God, it indeed should. I would say this also. I want to just... uh, in closing, draw your attention to verse 7. It says this. You be, uh, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in, in Macedonia, but your faith in God has gone everywhere. So here, here's uh, what's amazing. Their example has become a testimony, but they're an example of two things. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from them, as well as their faith or faithfulness. So an example is, is a combination. It is in what we say, and it's in how we serve. Because they turned from idols to serve a living God. And so we did, the simple ideas that we considered today, remember an example is not just what you do, but it also includes what you say, and more than that, our eyes and hearts are always who we do it for. Yeah, we've uh, concluded uh, a time for today, so let me just remind you of our three main points for today. The ultimate purpose of, of an example is the glory and name of God. A useful pattern, God is the perfect pattern. Godly people are a useful and beneficial pattern. There's often an underestimated power And so we think that we don't need to get involved in one another's lives and we don't need to be intentional in discipleship and mentoring because the word of God and the spirit of God will do all of that for them. No, that's not the case. We need to intentionally try to live as examples. We need to deliberately look for people as examples and we need to dig in with one another. Let's pray. Lord, as we just... um, consider the richness of this reality we know that there is no example like you and we thank you that uh, all that is uh, in your word but we know that with regard to Christ he did so much more and said so much more that the world could not contain books were they written of him and so Lord we thank you that in the the time and distance that separates us from Christ's incarnation as well as uh, the limited things that are recorded that your power The power of Christ and your word and spirit are presently at work even among us today. Lord, we pray that we would look for godly examples, that we would live as godly examples. And Lord, that you would just engage us in that sense of process, that we would look first of all above all else to you. Then we would look to those who are living out uh, by grace, your, your word and your truth. And Lord, that you would use us to encourage those who also need to see good examples. God, help us for your own name and glory. In Jesus' name we pray.